Welcome back to Timely, the podcast where three friends talk about random, fun topics from the past, present, and future. I am producer Jeff McCullough. I am taking the past segment, and guys, we are going to take a little stroll down memory lane okay. Okay. of the heritage of American music, specifically the 20th century. Okay. I'm Danny Gula, and for the present segment, I'm going to be talking about a particular individual from Nottingham. Oh, oh, I see where you're going. With I definitely this. see where you're going with this. <laughs> I don't think you do. Oh, oh, maybe oh, it's a twist. Yep. I'm John Stom, and for the future segment, we're going to be talking about a biomedical breakthrough that happened in late 2020 that does not have to do with the vaccine or COVID-19 or anything. Mm, okay. I'm sure there's been a lot of medical advances that nobody's talked about because we've been so <laughs> fixated on COVID-19 uh-huh. treatment and vaccines. Yeah. This one's it's going to get weird. The future is weird. Before we get going, I want to take a moment to talk about an awesome review we had on Apple Podcasts. It says, may cause an existential crisis. Timely should come with a warning label for extended use. May cause hysterical laughter, strange stares from others, If and if driving... I can't even... You know how to read. You can do this, Danny. Do Danny, this. work it you out. You know reading Sound aloud is one of my fears? Is it really? Yeah, I hate it. Cool. Why did you <laughs> volunteer to do this? Seriously. I face my fears. No, face your fears. Okay. Face your fears. All right. <clears throat> Timely should come with a warning label for extended use. May cause hysterical laughter, strange stares from others, and if driving for long periods, interactive and lively debates with oneself. Uh, You almost got it. You almost got it. Come on, man. So sad right now. Okay. And if driving for long periods, interactive and lively debates with self. Hmm. These guys are great. The setup is perfect with chatting about the past, present, and future and making everything relatable to us now. Nearly every episode brings some degree of shock factor that I personally have never thought about before. Huge shout out to the guys for the hard work they put into this on top of the dozens of other projects and just life in general. Stop reading this. Start listening. That's a great review. That's a great review. And you know what I love most about that review? Mm. Is it doesn't just sum up this podcast. It actually sums up our friendship. Yeah. Like, we have a lot of fun. We get into a lot of debates. We work really hard. And that's that's perfect because we want this podcast to be people hanging out with us. Absolutely. It did leave out how handsome we are, but, you know, it's an audio forum, so. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that was great. Let's go back to the past. Gentlemen, welcome to the past. Right. This is my personal favorite segment to do, so I'm happy to do it today. I thought you were going to say that your favorite time period. Yeah, <laughs> or is it like what you're talking about is your favorite thing or just the past in Just general? the past. Okay. I love doing past segments. Yeah, history's okay. cool. And the cool thing about that is we are not only mixing history today, but I want to mix history with music those are two of our favorite things. Yep. Specifically, music in America. Love it. Okay, three favorite things. The DNA, the the hardwired genomes mm-hmm. of music in America in the 20th century. Cool. I think that's like six or seven of our favorite things, DNA and genomes. Yeah, we love genomes. All right, so we're going to what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us on a little stroll starting around the turn of the century, 1900, that turn, not the most recent turn. That makes us old. Yeah. <laughs> the turn from 1899 to 1900. You got to specify these things. Okay. That's yeah. right. And here's what I want you to do, though. There's something that all of these artists have in common, beside being pioneers in these specific genres of music. And I want to see if our listeners can pick up on 
what is that commonality? Okay. Okay. All right. So we're, here's where we're going to start. You get to like 1899. American music, Americana music, sounded a lot like this. John Philip Sousa. John Philip Sousa. Sousa himself. Yeah. Very square. It's very military. We had just been involved in a lot of different military encounters coming out of the Civil War, the Spanish-American War. We had all kinds of stuff going on here, right? So it's very Marine band, all this other. There was Nas- classical music. What's that? I was going to say nationalism. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all that was going on. And then all of a sudden something happened. Something changed. That was like popular music of the day because you could go to like a park. You could do- go to a parade and you could hear people performing this music. And then a guy came along from the south. I think he was from Texas. Mm-hmm. And he brought a completely different sound to that square sort of robotic military sound. Mm-hmm. And it sounded a lot like this. Oh, yeah. Got a little Scott Joplin. There we go. No so good. You consider Texas the south? Well, Heck yeah. yeah. I mean, I it's, think it's like its own thing. <laughs> in the south. This kind of music. I, I'm pretty sure Texans do not want to be associated with the south. Regardless, it's in Southern America. Okay. That's okay. Cool. And, and the thing is, is that musically, a lot of um, Southern musicians from like Alabama, Mississippi, all that, they actually would go to Texas because there was a lot of opportunity for work, yeah. uh, railroad, oil fields, all that other stuff. So uh, this is Scott Joplin. He wrote Maple Leaf Rag and it became a little bit more playful, yeah. a little more romantic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like this robotic marching stuff. But it's also really complicated. Like yeah. it, is. it sounds complex, but also it's, really fun. Not like a... It's not like a Beethoven piece where you're no. like, this had to be written by someone who knew music theory and, uh, you know, it was very like, inge- I mean, this is brilliant music, but it doesn't really sound that way. It sounds effortless. It does. But it's also very complex. And I will say from experience, you guys know I'm a piano player. I've been taking piano lessons since I was second grade, right? Yeah. I'm actually playing, I'm learning to play this song right now and I'm a year and a half into it and I'm about three quarters of the way through. I still have 25% of the song to learn because it is complex. Well, because your left hand's doing a completely different thing than your right hand. Yeah, it's, it's like polyrhythm. It's strutting, striding, yeah. Wow. Okay, so then this is ragtime music and this sort of set the foundation for um, sort of a mix between march and rag and it turned out to be called, a guy named W.C. Handy is mm-hmm. the one who came up with this. <laughs> Hang on, was he a piano player? No, he wasn't actually. Okay. He he was a band leader. Okay, but he came up the handy with thing was getting me there. The blues. Yeah. Now this is specifically called St. Louis blues. Okay, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, hang on, this is blues music, and then I hear it now. Yeah, now yeah. the th- cool thing you'll hear about this is that it it mixes marching with sort of a playful rag. Like right here sounds very march marching band, but yeah. I want you to give it a second because yeah. it turns into. A very swung, playful, listen. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's sexy there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a modern version of it. They would have played it more straight back then. It wouldn't have been quite as swung. Yeah. But um, it's got that same, it's more playful than the marching band music, right? Sure, sure, sure. So, then you move from the blues, and you're going to get into... New Orleans, they're hearing the Scott Joplin stuff. They're hearing W.C. Handy, just completely changing music. And they start getting their like mini band leaders together with people that um, had a hard time finding jobs, but they had like a passion for music. And then this guy named Buddy Bolden in New Orleans starts coming up with something completely unique on the piano. Mm. It's got this like swag, mm-hmm. smoky, got a little yeah. stank to it. You gotta make that face when you're playing it. Yeah. Thought I heard 
The, the thing that nobody can see is that we're all just like swaying, swaying our heads, but not like evenly. It's just like, yeah. Now the person performing this song is a guy named Jelly Roll Morton. Oh, Jelly Roll. Jelly Roll. Who was also big in New Orleans. But this is pretty much the inception of jazz. Yeah. It was like yeah. taking that raggy sound, mixing it with a blues sound, and you start to get some flavors of jazz in here. And let that bad air out. And then a guy comes along by the name of Jimmy Yancey. Love the story of Jimmy Yancey. Jimmy Yancey was this piano player. He was a groundskeeper for the Chicago White Sox and just played in bars on the weekends. And he started to come up. This is called State Street Special. And if you're familiar with Chicago, State yep. Street is one of the main streets uh, that run through Chicago. And he starts to have a little bit more fun with it. Yep. Adding some more flair. Yeah. So we got some jazzy blues thing going on. And this straight up, this feels like Chicago too. Yeah. Like I, I lived next to two famous blues bars in Chicago, and every weekend you can go and hear music. It's still like yeah. this, you know, modern instruments, but still has the same feel to it. Still those blues chords. Yeah, one, four, five. What's going on here is this is this is improvised, which was something new as well. It wasn't like. Scott Joplin, he had sheet music and he wrote Maple Leaf Rag right, out, right? right? W.C. Handy wrote out St. Louis Blues, Memphis Blues. This is, he's just playing. Yeah. yeah. And that's a really cool moment in history too, because like to people who don't understand music, sometimes it can just sound like, why do you like jazz? Why do you want to listen to this? It's just people making up as they go. But there's a, there's a formula that it's a whole band right. following and communicating. It's a lot more like a conversation than a predetermined speech. It's so much more expressive right. in that sense. Yeah. So then... The, Jimmy Yancey is considered the godfather of what's called Boogie Woogie, which one of his buddies, uh, Mead Lux Lewis, took it to the next level. And now, here's what you're going to hear. We're starting to get proto-1950s yeah, rock, it's right? It's to feel a little bit like rock and roll. Yeah. This is like 1930s, 1940s. But they Would this be considered... Uh... This, this is straight up boogie woogie. This is, oh, boogie woogie. This is the definition of boogie woogie right here. In fact, this song is called Boogie Woogie Prayer. Okay. Are boogie is boogie woogie typically faster like this than? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yep. So, what's going on here is this came out a lot out of the South. This came out of Texas. Um, and really, if you listen to that, that left hand, they wanted that to sound like trains. Because these guys would, they would go down to train like places where there were railroad stops and play in taverns, and that left hand sounds like trains. Oh, there's a lot of bars along railroad right. lines. I mean, that's where the workers would go. So here are the names we've talked about so far: Scott Joplin, W.C. Handy, Jelly Roll Morton, Buddy Bolden, Jimmy Yancey, Mead Lux Lewis. Right. So this, before you get going, go ahead. You know, you just get, made me think of something. One of the best blues bars in St. Louis is right by all the railroad tracks. It is, yeah. BB's. It's BB's right, right down downtown. Yeah, like yep. That's where all like the railroads intersect. That's right, yeah. So this set the stage for a guy like Little Richard. Yeah. Same kind of bass line right here. Got some more flair. Got the drums. Yep. Stand up bass. Yeah. Some breaks. Mm -hmm. And a lot more, um, almost like aggression in the singing. Like, like really like positive and like. This is the beginning of rock and roll, yeah, yeah. basically. And Little Richard gives way to a guy from St. Louis named Charles Barry. 
Similar bass lines and chord progressions here. It's called a one, four, five. Yep. One of my biggest regrets is not seeing him play. He used to play like at the once a month in St. Louis, and I always used to say, "He's gonna die soon. I need to go see him." And I moved away, and then never saw him. And he died while I moved. Yeah. So you're hearing some uh, influences of jazz, boogie woogie, blues, in a rock setting now. Yeah, that vocal performance too, where he's like throwing away the last note. Uh-huh. He'll like sing it and then just kind of then just shout it. Yeah, sort of kind of toss it. He sang that one, but right there, just yeah. throws it away. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of setting the stage for some music later. Mm-hmm. And right after Chuck Berry, you got a guy who's bringing church influences I know into yeah, yeah. blues, jazz, and rock and roll. A guy by the name of Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. And that was controversial, man. Yeah, like, it was. I mean, it was a great way to reach people because at the time. You know, so many people were so attached to their gospel songs, and they, hear, they, they sang these songs with their family, and for him to give them like a new life into pop music reached a broader audience, but then also just brought in this music that everybody had kind of heard, and yeah. really just was blending uh, the country. Something really beautiful that's taking place right around 1959. He sounds like Nat King Cole. Yeah. He sounds like, uh, he's got the same chord progression a little Richard. And he's actually, believe it or not, if you listen to Jimmy Yancey's stuff, Ray Charles was emulating Jimmy Yancey, the, the White Sox groundskeeper. Yeah. Okay. And it's then inter- it's interesting that you say like you know, Nat King Cole and, and just like his voice and how he's si- or and how Ray Charles is singing here. Just like I never thought about that before. That, yeah. Yeah. He's blending so many different genres right here. Right. And and in the meantime, jazz has started going into some really experimental realms. So you got a guy like Thelonious Monk, who's now taking things into a more abstract realm. It's not quite as as uh, organized. It was 1954. It's you can like you can hear the mid-century modern yeah. style, visual style. They're just in, breaking in, it in the music. Yeah, it always reminds me of uh, Looney Tunes from the mid-century. Remember yeah. they were a little different. They had that jazz feel to them. Uh-huh. Uh, this is probably my second favorite era of jazz, next to the Louisiana dissonant. Yeah, yeah. complex. It's a a rhythmic. It's a tonal. And then this gives way, obviously, to the the legends of modern jazz: Johnny Coltrane, Miles Davis. Yeah, yeah. This is when you get these like incredible players. Yeah. And everybody, and like we talked about before, with the blues and like improvising, and jazz and improvising, like now way more people speak the language, right? And there's way more vocabulary, and yeah. they're having a conversation tonally, right? Now, in the meantime, you've got these other offshoots of people wanting to take it not atonal and you know abstract but take it let's let's press into the area of rock and roll and expression so you got Aretha Franklin setting the stage for the 1960s again this is soul this is like Ray Charles this is like church and blues did she play an instrument too or just sing so good yeah it's it's like what church uh, I think was sometime in the early 60s no auto-tune, you know, yeah. no, none of the vocal trickery that we have now with computers and stuff. This is all just, just great raw control, talent. Yeah. yeah. So much, so many feels. Yep, got feels. And tied to soul, then Motown Records yes. emerges mm. with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Love me some Motown beats, man. Dude, man, favorite station on Sirius XM 49. Yeah. 
Not sponsored. Not sponsored at all. It like I, I came with my car and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna keep paying for this just for the Soul Station. Yeah. It's just it's you never can feel bad listening to this. It's pure sixties, like it's yeah. it has sixties vibes, but you can hear everything that it's drawing on. And if you if you think uh, I want you to understand the the connection here. They're doing blues chord progressions with sort of a rock-inspired edge, but yet the smoothness of soul and jazz, just all, Mm -hmm. and church, just all mixed in. Layering on top. And then you have people that come along, they're always going to break it. Got some funk going on. Stanky funk. James Brown, godfather of funk. name of his bass player? Nobody knows. I can't remember. So you, oh, you knew it at one point? I, I so good. I got a year. So this is some evolution, right? Just right. a few more stops here because we're in the 1960s here. And then in the 1970s, this may not be your, your jam. This may not be your favorite kind of music. But Gloria Gaynor put together this sound on a song called Never Can Say Goodbye that had never been done before, but this is kind of a mix between like soul and pop and a couple other things, and everybody started doing it. Strings. Yeah. Disco. Disco. Yeah, disco. This is the first disco song. She's the the matriarch of disco. Yeah, you get that four on the floor beat, and you get the strings going. Yeah, and when you listen to this, like, you think about all this is like, this is, as you see the evolution, you can see technology changing, instruments being invented and created and yeah. and mastered, and even tech, like, recording technology making things more capable, you know, more sensitive microphones cater to different types of singing, and yeah, yeah you can see, like, it's just, it's got its same roots, but it's all just building off itself and walking away from that straight march music we started with. To that point, they're experimenting with different uh, techniques, right. different instruments, more electronic sounds, mm-hmm. which this sets the stage for. Uh oh. Uh oh. You know where we're going with this? The Sugar Hill Gang? I was oh, guessing yeah, hip hop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It almost has like a disco uh-huh. instrumentation, but they just break it. They're yep. always breaking it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used to always say in music theory, like, you learn the rules before you break them, and yeah. then, like, when you get really good at them and you can break them really well. It creates something really cool. Just stripped it down to the studs. Like that's just a bass guitar and drums. Yep. Hand claps. There's the strings. There's, There's your just strings. disco strings. Yep. Yo, yo, I said a hip hop. I don't know the words. But like, let's just not sing. No. Let's just let's just appreciate. Let's just say the words. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They're not singing. It's just like let's take the melody out of it. Yeah. Which, as we know. Is rhythm and prose so prevalent? Like, not just prevalent. It is like one of the most important genres in American music. Oh yeah. All right. So then, um, the last one of the last stops we're going to take here is a guy who's going to take sort of that same feel. You got that like that bass line with a heavy, heavy, heavy rhythm, mm-hmm. right? But then again, let's just push it a little further. Yeah. Some synthesizers. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, adding the dance moves. Yep. He, I mean, well, the king of pop, of course, but like 
the, he's Michael Jackson, by the way. Not only the 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 music, but the persona. Like, I mean, so many of these guys you've t- talked about before, Little Richard and everybody else, uh, James Brown also had these amazing personas, but Michael Jackson just well, another level. You can just you can almost see Michael Jackson as like the big band leader of his day. Like if you think about it, like he's orchestrated this thing. Like you know who's playing guitar in here? Van Halen. Yeah, Eddie Van Halen. And to reach across genres and be like, you know what? I have I, I have a sound I want to get, and I'm I'm gonna get it with the best of the best. I'm gonna coordinate all this and create this sound that it's gonna be iconic forever. Exactly. It's such a good song. Mm-hmm. Syncopated. And then I was I, we could keep going because even um, you know if if we listen to if we go over here to. Um. Mm-hmm. There, there's not the diva, right? Mm-hmm, right. Like Aretha Franklin is technically the first diva, but Whitney Houston is the modern diva. So, like and, your Christina Aguilera's and even Ariana Grande, they're all emulating Whitney Houston. Untouchable voice. Untouchable. And it's interesting to hear. Um, as the electronic music starts to get in there, like you get kind of back to this straight rhythm because at the time, that's all the electronic instruments could do, but you still kind of have this, there's a little bit of a swing feel yeah, in the rest right. of the instrument, instrumentation. All right, so as we come out of this little journey, you guys, normally when we do these segments, it's a surprise, and I gave you guys a heads up. This one's not going to be a surprise. So the, the one commonality that hopefully all, you know, any listener is listening has picked up on is every single name that I just mentioned is an African-American. It's incredible. Like, Unbelievable. That's 20th century music right there. American, I mean, not even just American music. That's just mainstream world music, all from black Americans. And they weren't, these weren't just notable artists. All the artists that I mentioned are the pioneers of that genre. And mm-hmm. think about the genres we talked about. We talked about ragtime, blues, jazz. Which ones didn't you talk about? <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll. Uh-huh. Guys, Hip-hop. Little Richard and uh, Chuck Berry yeah. preceded Elvis Presley totally. and Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you have funk, you've got disco, you've got rap, you've got pop, you've got diva, like just pop, like the female arena ballad diva. Like mm-hmm. it was all pioneered by African Americans. It's incredible. Uh, the like just thinking I, I think about this all the time and that that story of American music and and how it, we, we wouldn't be anywhere without African Americans but just to think about like the artistry and the thought behind that like great music comes from all of the experiences in our lives and no culture in America has experienced such a wide range of emotions and struggle and pain as as African American community has and like that's like that's just got to be in some way just seeding this like drive like you think about just starting with the blues in general just like to express this pain this this sadness that you have into such a beautiful art form like and it just set the state set the stage for the rest of american music well the the reason why that struck me so much and why i even did that is because the so often even whenever we do things like celebrate black history month and stuff like that it's there's something that's great about it and at the same time something talking as three white guys that's a little bit shameful about it that we like we have to make ourselves talk about it because we can so easily ignore it and this isn't even just about giving african americans credit this is about pointing to the fact that african americans are america 
Right. Like they they were forced immigrated here, <laughs> where a lot yeah. of our ancestors chose voluntarily it. came here, and yet they make up the DNA of America. They're not added onto America. Mm-hmm. They are in this sense. Think about how much we enjoy and are influenced by the the musical just. Uh, heritage heritage and the environment that today we still listen to that we wouldn't have if it were not for americans who are of african descent Mm -hmm. right i don't i don't think you could argue with the fact that there's no subset of american culture that has had a bigger impact on actual culture of american americans Mm -hmm. not like you know policy getting land whatever but the actual culture of us as americans like that's that's deep in our roots Mm -hmm. yeah I just thought that was a it's, a, it's a powerful thing to stop and take a look at, especially because in a lot of these cases, like even a lot of these genres, you know, you'll get people like, um, like the Gershwin brothers get a lot of, uh, they were white guys. Mm-hmm. They get a lot of credit because they had great careers for putting together a lot of their show tunes and like jazz uh, classics that wasn't really their idea. Yep. Uh, the Bee Gees are all about disco. They didn't start it, right? Right. Um, even whenever it gets into, like, I know we already talked about it, rock and roll. Like the Beatles were influenced by, they started their band because of African-American right. um, rock and roll artists. Like that's why they started doing it. So the pioneers, the ones who started, the ones who came up, conceptualized, and brought that expression into our just like social consciousness, African-Americans. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty cool. Unbelievable. Very cool. Yeah. Good trip down. Um Historical lane, <laughs> yes. historical lane. Yeah, I didn't remember all of those because I, I wasn't there. But yeah, it wasn't exactly memory lane. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember remembering it. <laughs> all right, let's go into the present. I want to take a minute to talk about our sponsor, FAO Schwartz, and a new line of plush they have coming out for the Easter season. Uh, they have just a line of traditional bunnies, but then they also have a really cool line called Cheers for Ears, which are great for kids, which are just a, a series of different plush animals that aren't necessarily Easter themed. So after the holiday season, you can use them year round and not feel like, oh, I, I'm using an Easter toy. Uh, but they come with these fun little uh, bunny ears that they wear that you can take off and give to your kid. I know my kids get a kick out of wearing bunny ears actually on Easter day. I can't take them off of them like the whole day. They'll just wear Easter bunny ears. This festive, man. The other, the other thing they have are just traditional bunnies, like what you would think of when you think of Easter. When my kids come up here while we're filming stuff, and they look at all the cool toys that we are like playing with and shooting. I would expect them to be wanting to take home like some of the RC stuff and some of that. My girls, they as soon as they see this plush, they're like, I want to take that home. And they love the Easter plush. They just yeah. wanted to take that home. Super well, soft. Yeah, they're incredibly soft. And I will say this, like without any hint of like, you know, those sponsors making me say this. My kids straight up say all the time, F.A.O. Schwartz makes the best plush. And I think they're right. It has something to do with how soft they are, how cute they are. Like, they really are so cuddly and snuggly. Like, awesome presents for anybody. So check out the Cheers for Ears and the F.A.O. Schwartz plush bunnies only at Target. gentlemen are you uh ready to go to nottingham england sure is it uh, nottingham or nottingham sure would i am there it is there, there it is. is uh now you guys seemed pretty sure about what i was going to talk about what do you think it was robin hood the app um which is a, a popular like finance app it was just in the news because of the whole um gamestop saga yeah yeah um yeah we won't get into all that epic saga if you want to if you want to get into that that's fine we won't get into it today we're going to actually talk about nottingham england 
Okay. Right nice. Now. I'm really into England right now because I am an Anglophile, so I'm really looking forward to whatever you're talking about. So before I get into this story a little bit and tell you what's going on, I'm just going to read the headline because I'm really, I've been really interested to see your guys' response to this, and I don't know, I'm hoping you guys haven't heard about this. British boy wakes from nearly year-long coma, unaware of COVID pandemic. Oh. Well, I mean, we knew that that was going to happen at some point, right? right? We knew that that was going to happen. <sighs> and my wife sent me this last week, and I was like, he, at that point, he was waking up. He hadn't woken up yet. He had just started to show signs of waking. How old are we talking about? 19. Whoa, that's the perfect age to like be able to like grapple with this. I was thinking like five. Before, no. before we get too celebratory yeah, yeah, yeah. about like his medical condition, do we know why he was in a coma? Yeah, he got hit by a car. Okay. Oh. Is, is he okay? Uh, not right now. Okay. I mean, I think he's going to recover, I think. And it's, okay. they, say, they described his long road recovery. We'll get into that. But yeah, when I had first heard this, I was like, that's 28 days later. It is. Oh. That or, is 28 days or the, later. Or The Walking Dead. Or Yeah, or The Walking Dead. Anytime when you go to sleep, wake up, the world's totally different. different. Oh, my gosh. And bad. And we've all gotten to experience this over the past year and adjusted to it. And I was just thinking to myself the other day, I'm like, man, this... This is a bummer. Like, Is it, though? Maybe it's better this way. The dude missed all the hard stuff, and now that we got vaccines rolling out, now he's like, okay. Right. Well, let, so, let, so I don't know, because I'm thinking, like, yeah, we've all kind of gradually adjusted to it, which, I mean, it's. I wish I would not have gone through this year, but uh, 2020. John, but, um, I'm sorry I gave your wife COVID. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I didn't get it, so I'm good. Oh, okay, that's all you care about. I don't care about. <laughs> that sounds terrible. So he was hit by a car in the central English town of Burton-on-Trent. Which is, I guess, how they name towns in they, England. What are they doing? I don't over know there? what they're doing over there. That's not a city name. What is that? Uh, it's like a thing on a guy, right? Britain on, Britain on Trent. Br- Burton on Trent. Burton on Trent. What's on Trent? Who's, who's Trent? What's on him? Burton's on him. What's on? Why? I don't know. How'd it get there? That's where we live. Who's Trent? What? Oh, this is a town. <laughs> Good luck following this podcast, listeners. Yeah, no, he went into, uh, he got hit by a car on March 1st of last year. Oh, that's right when it was ramping up, yep. man. About three weeks before the first national lockdown was imposed to curb the spread of the virus. Now, he would have been aware of what was going on in Italy, because Italy was getting hit really hard in January, right. February time frame. True. Yeah. So, during that time, uh, his family wasn't able to get near him or hold his hand or anything, mostly just trying to communicate during video wow. through video. Um, recently, he started to show signs of small recovery, which they were thrilled. Like, he was just kind of moving, responding. Uh, he started responding with blinks at first, so they could ask him questions, and he could blink yes or no. So they know he could hear them, he could respond. Now he's touching his nose and, like, doing very small things. He's a long road to recovery. Um, but the first thing they had to explain to him was, you're okay. We're sorry we can't get near you right now. Oh, okay. So this this is where it does. This hit. is where it gets weird. Like yeah. imagine waking up from a coma and you're just in a room, there's people in spacesuits around you. Yeah. And you can't talk to, see, or touch your family. That's that's rough. That's Whoa. a nightmare. And Whoa. you got hit by a car. And you got yeah. hit by a car. The last thing you remember is if you remember getting hit right. by a car, you might just remember walking around the street. Like, you just, like, all of a sudden, whoa, what's happening here? Dude, that has got to be surreal. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Uh, so it, he, he's, they've got a website set up for him. Um, if you guys want to go, it's uh, josephsjourney.co.uk. His family posts updates there. You can donate for, for uh, financial support if they need it. But he's in a... Uh, He's in a, a home right now that's taking care of him. But he was just about to attend. He was supposed to get an award. He was an athlete. 
He was going to get uh, his Gold Duke of Edinburgh Award, which is something they do there. Well, I mean, the Duke of Edinburgh, we know who that is, right? That's the Queen's That's Prince husband? Philip, yeah. Yeah, right? So that, that must be a pretty elite award because yeah, he was an athletic guy. Award, yeah. So, you know, it's bringing them all together. But, man, I could not fathom what it would be like to wake up like that. Again, I'm wondering, like, is it uh, the whole waking up without being able to be around your family has got to be, like, has to add to the confusion of a situation. But sure. when it comes to just experiencing the pandemic, would you guys rather face it head on and have to walk through it like we have? Or would you like, would you have liked to have just been like, wake me up when it's about a halfway right. or three quarters of the way yeah. through? Yeah, like, let's say you're going, you know, you're going to live 70 years or 75 years right. or whatever. Would you sacrifice one year if you could snap your fingers and just subtract a year from your life? If you could, if it would be 2020 or whatever, yeah. um, you know, painless and obviously this is a ridiculous mind experiment because this guy's gone through not something I don't, I don't want to go through. Right. But yeah, if you could somehow miraculously make it all. Well, at the speed at which he's recovering, he will probably, it'll be a slow recovery. He probably won't have to venture out into the outside world until we're pretty far through this. And, you know, we're going to. In some respect, he's still going to have to deal with it. And a lot of people, I think, do make that joke. Oh, I wish I could have just skipped this whole year. But in my opinion, man, like, he's got to figure out how to adjust to this new world without sure. having experienced it all. Don't get it. Like, we all witnessed at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't know much about it and we had to be way overly cautious. Remember when you let your, like, Amazon deliveries sit outside for two hours after mm -hmm. you sprayed them just because you weren't sure if that was the right thing to do or not? Yep. Like, we all had to do that. And he just has to wake up and be like, okay, how do I... How do I acclimate? Now, again, being sensitive to his medical situation, the road to recovery, whatever, I don't, we don't know how badly injured right. he is. That might actually trump the acclimating to a pandemic world. Right. But um, it does beg the question that you're asking, John, like, what is better? Like, when we say that, kind of just in passing to yeah. just express how hard 2020 was, right. is it better to avoid the hardship or is it better to have to go through it and come out on the other side? I, as much as it is easier to say, oh yeah, just skip all the hard things. And, you know, I, I honestly think we are all stronger for going through it um, in different ways. We've learned to adapt and cope. But I'm also really thankful for 2020 in a lot of ways. I had a ton of time with my family that I wouldn't yeah. have gotten otherwise. So there's a lot to, to be thankful for that it wasn't just all completely bad that I'd want to just skip. Um, and it can be both because there was bad too. Like I, totally. I lost a lot of people in 2020. Right. So for me, uh, it's more nuanced than that. It's, it's, it's from a personal standpoint of just what I experienced. I'm with you, John. It was like, yeah, I, I had more time with the family. Having to work together to face the new normal was an enriching though difficult experience. And yet at the same time, we can't undo what was lost because lives were lost and stuff like that, which none of us would would ever um wish to in some way put our own comforts and conveniences over the fact that there are some people that can't get through it right right or even people who are still who who lost people who once we do get through the pandemic they can't go back to normal because loved ones have been lost but it's it's still an interesting thought experiment even as even as we each individually ask that question, like, what have I learned this year? And maybe right. it was better for me to face it. Otherwise, I would not have learned what I learned if I would have just slept through it. Yeah, it'll be an interesting question for him as he, like, gets healthier and can come out of this. And hopefully, I, I'm not sure. I don't know much about comas, like what, what it takes for the body to just say, nah, I'm going to break for a while um, and just nap for a long time. 
I don't, so I don't know like what his physical uh, condition is going to be like. Uh, hopefully, like if he's responding and stuff, it sounds like his mind's still there and he's able to to coordinate like some kind of communication. So it'll be interesting to see and follow his journey to see what he he thinks of the whole thing because he's the only one that I know of right now that could answer that question yeah. for us. Yeah. Would you rather have lived through it or not? I mean, I'm sure his family would have rather him not lived through like lived through it this way. Right. But maybe in one way, when it's done, they're like, hey, you didn't have to experience a lot of this. I I, I doubt that. I think they would rather him be healthy, but. Uh, man, I, I'm excited to read the story. So you can follow along uh, josephsjourney.co.uk if you want to just keep up with that and see what's happening. But it's a fascinating story because I remember saying that like some people are going to wake up in hospitals. Yeah. And yeah. be like, what happened? That's an extreme version of Jared Leto. Remember that? I did hear about Jared Leto, yes. What, what happened to Jared Leto? He was like in the desert, probably at the same time that he went into that, that Joseph went into the coma. Um, right at the beginning of all this, maybe late February, early March. It was it was actually yeah the beginning of March, and it was like a deep meditation. Yeah, it was retreat. like a two week, three week meditation thing, and he no no communication. They took yeah. their phones. He said he drove all the way back to L.A. No phone, whatever. He got <laughs> settled in, and he's like, "Wait, what? Whoa!" <laughs> so I mean, this is you know, obviously way way different, but yeah. That at the time seemed mind blowing that he yeah. missed like two weeks, and we were like, "Dude, Jared, you missed a <laughs> wild two weeks, man!" Yeah, because it, it has been a heck of a year, and I'm with you guys too. Like, uh, it there are so many things that I wouldn't have wanted to happen for that, but I think it is very healthy and good to sit back and reflect on like what are the blessings you still had this year. Mm-hmm. Like, like you said, John, like I, we worked so far away from home when we were at Bat 19. And we got so little time with our family throughout the week that I remember sitting through all of that and being like, yeah, every one of these days is kind of hard. We're doing homeschool. We're all next to each other. Like, we're, you know, you start getting upset with each other. And it's, it's hard to be in that close proximity with so few people for so long. But at the same time, I'm just like, man, like, I, I didn't get to be a stay-at-home dad. So at least I'm getting to witness this with my kids. I'm being a part of this. So I'm going to take that for what it is. Um, so yeah, would you sleep through it all? I probably wouldn't. No. Nah, no. Nah. I, I think the things that are that are harder would make us who we are today, and don't change them. That's right. It's important to face life head on, as hard as it is sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. What was this kid's name? His name is Joseph Flavel. Yeah, we're rooting for him, pulling for him. We'll actually put a link in the show notes uh, if you want to follow his recovery and this new story below. But uh, it was yeah, that's that's an interesting thought experiment for yeah. sure. Best wishes to Joseph. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the future. future. Nice, guys. That, that was, was good. super nerdy. I that loved it. That was so nerdy. <laughs> Scary. That's what it was. <laughs> All right, guys. Toward the end of 2020, the nation of Singapore became the first country in the world to allow the sale of cultured meat. Cultured meat? Like with bacteria Yeah, culture. When I hear cultured anything, I think of a Petri dish. Like, yep, you're on the right track. Wait, no, I don't want to cul- be on the right track. What's cultured on it? It's also, it's also called clean meat. So I mean, it sounds a little different than cultured, but it's like it's like an oxymoron. It's clean but cultured. Cultured meat, clean meat. Um, this is meat, real meat that's been grown in a lab. Oh, oh, yeah. oh hold, on, hold, on, hold on, real meat. Yeah, this is real meat, not fake meat, not fake meat. Grown in a lab. Okay, so this is different than what we're um, you know we've kind of been experiencing in, yeah. in the mainstream uh, recently in recent years. Impossible meat mm-hmm. and uh, Beyond Meat or whatever. Those are um, meat alternatives. They're not actually meat. They're made from plants. Right. I'm really excited about this industry, by the way. So those meats, Impossible Meat, Beyond Meat, 
those meat alternatives have been, um, you know, developed in labs as well. They're highly refined processes. We've probably talked about them on the podcast before. Yeah. Um, they are, um, you know, lots and lots of money in R&D has gone into developing the right plant combinations that taste just like beef, which right. is kind of actually really incredible. Unbelievable that they can do it. It's very, very close. Very, but, but this is different. This is different. This is, um, I wouldn't even say newer. Um, it's just not really to our mainstream market yet. Okay, so this is something that's coming in the future. Coming in the future. Okay. But it's it's happening in Singapore now. Now, I know I've seen this is being developed in the United States as well. So th- what cultured meat is, um, is, is they take stem cells from an animal. Um, and, you know, stem, stem cells are the, like, w- when you have an embryo and, um, s- and cells haven't, like, um, differentiated yet to be like skin cells or I don't know blood cells or whatever. They're not fully formed. Yeah, they're it's just a blank slate cell. It, it's a blank slate cell. Uh, that's my understanding of yeah, it. Yeah, it can be any. It could become anything. It's like a yeah, it's like a child. It, it can become yeah. anything. So the scientists take stem cells and they grow them in a little um, petri dish. Right. I don't know how they do that part of it. That sounds like magic, but th- it's actually much more complicated than I even understand because they've been working on this for a long time. Yeah. I thought this was a relatively new thing that researchers were working on um, because, you know, A, we don't have it available for sale yet, and B, nobody's really talking about this yet. Yeah. Um, everybody's still kind of getting used to this idea of impossible burgers. But this meat technology is is not available for sale yet. It's just sort of being developed. Um, but it goes all the way back to Winston Churchill. That makes wow. complete sense. I, I knew it was going in this direction. That would make sense. Yes, it, it would. So... <laughs> In 1931, Winston Churchill wrote, um, I guess in, in, I don't know, one of his books or memoirs or something, that about the future, he said, we shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. So, and then Winston Churchill? I don't think it was his idea, but I think he's just sort of like showing how the 20th century is... uh, Is wasteful, I suppose. Right. Sure. But also like technology is, is advancing so quickly that um, yeah, we're we're gonna get to the point someday where, and probably not far in the future, where um, we're just gonna grow parts of meat instead of the whole. Yeah, and now the, the things I've seen because I'd seen somebody in San Francisco like working on this and a, a chef like trying to cook with it, and then they would feed it to people to be like, "What do you think?" With cultured meat, yes, with okay. cultured meat. So like this is this is being developed in the United States as, as a scientific experiment, basically, but it's not like. It's not ready for f- being actual food yet, but the thing I had seen, it was mostly like ground beef. Is that what this is kind of going right now? Because they, they were saying like the goal would be to grow like a ribeye eventually, but... That gets to the the main question in my mind is like when I think of meat, I think of a fully intact muscle that has like a, a, a veins and arteries going through them to right. feed it and to grow it and stuff like that. If you don't have that, what is it? I mean, because if we think about even eating red meat, which I know isn't always healthy... Like the taste is determined by how much of the blood you keep in it. If this is a bloodless meat, uh, how is it even close to being meat? I don't know. T- uh, you don't, because I'm sure you just read a couple articles, which is <laughs> kind of how we prepare for these types of things. That is maybe a rhetorical question, mm-hmm. but the whole thing is very mysterious. To yeah, me. yeah, it brings up a lot of questions: ethical, sure, environmental. Um, all, uh, what, you know, was this ever an animal? Was it ever killed? Was it ever alive? Yeah. Like, is it still is it considered meat if it didn't come from the animal? Which I guess the cells did, the stem cells. There's all right. sorts of questions that people have been grappling with, and as you guys think about those questions amongst yourselves, would you ever taste a, a lab-grown burger? I know you're without all, question. You're already you're down. I I would eat it right now, even if it was a scientist that came and said like, "Hey, man, 
I've been working on this cultured meat. Do you want to be the test dummy? I'd be like, yup. Okay, well, that's weird. Well, throughout the decades after Winston Churchill said this, um, scientists have been working on it in different ways, in different uh, countries. NASA even actually studied it for a while, which I thought makes a lot of sense. Right. You, know, sure. you want astronauts to be able to grow their own food. Yeah, especially if you're thinking long-term space journeys, mm-hmm. like being able to actually feed them meat in space. Can't take animals with you to Mars. Yeah. Right. In 2003, um, a small steak, we're talking like centimeters you know, wide or long, was grown from frog stem cells. So a little frog steak. Okay. Um, and that, that started the <laughs> little frog steak. <laughs> little frog steak. Uh, I love frog steak. <laughs> um, but it wasn't really, you know, it's not really quite a, a proof of concept. It was it was tiny. Um, but that just kind of started the conversation right. about, like, the ethics of it. Like, people were like, wait a second, hold on. You took this from a frog. Was it, was it ever a frog? Was it ever frog meat? I guess not. Yeah. You never had to kill a frog to get it. I don't know why where, where the ethical concern would be. I think unless there's somebody who's just concerned that like, are you playing God and trying to create life that's not life? Possibly, but they're not. They're trying to create food. They're trying to create food. Yeah, and for me, I think the ethical thing is to do it because no longer do you have a meat industry. Let's face it, is a little cruel, um, delicious but cruel. Um, yeah, you don't have to worry because I, I would always say like I would eat any plant based meat substitute as long as it tasted like meat like just most of them for years were horrible up until we got beyond and yeah. impossible yeah. burgers soy burgers were nasty yeah. so uh the clean the reason why they call it clean meat i'm assuming is because it's going to cut down on how much uh cattle and stuff like that we're going to need so being yep. that like mm-hmm. methane from cattle is like 18 percent of uh greenhouse gas greenhouse emissions. gases i uh, guess that's why they're calling it clean meat well, yeah not even that but probably bacteria like if it's lab grown like in a very oh, yeah. controlled environment there's going to be no pesticides in the food they're eating there's going to be no growth hormones nothing in the animals themselves yeah it's meant to address a whole lot of problems but, like sustainability you know you can just grow meat as long as you can grow things <laughs> as, long, as much as you can grow you can grow the meat you don't have to have like a certain amount of cattle um, you don't have to have the space for the cattle and the, the giant farms and the industries of these these giant warehouses holding all these chickens and but would it be hormone free like wouldn't they wouldn't you think they would need to use some sort of something like a hormone to induce growth well you would but I think it'd be different because like what they do with animals now is they like we all have hormones and they're giving them hormone therapy to change how they grow versus this is a completely new thing like whether or not like if you harvest stem cells from a cow and you create a ribeye like once they get to that point where they can actually create a long chunk of meat maybe it's a loin maybe it's the whole you're going to get a bunch of fillets out of it Um, it's not like what there's nothing unnatural that it's not supposed to have because you determined what it was supposed to have. You can control it all and make sure it has what it needs and what it doesn't need. Well, I'm telling you right now, I'm not eating it. You're not eating? No, I heard they rushed it through trials. Oh, oh I see what I you're see going what you're there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so fast forward a little. You know, people are going to say that though. Oh, oh yeah. They're going to be like, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's going to cause you to like. I ain't eating that. It's not natural. Hair on your teeth and stuff like that. Uh huh. Totally. That's and that's part of the reason why it's not like widely available or even really talked about yet is because. They have to figure it out and make sure it works and that it's safe, but then they have to figure out how to market this so that people don't completely freak out. Yeah. So in 2008, PETA announced a contest with a million-dollar prize to create chicken that was indistinguishable from real meat, um, and it also had to be mass-produced. And they'd give a million dollars to anybody who did it, which also, that doesn't really seem like that a, that like a lot of money. Enough. The <laughs> amount of research funds that would be required yeah. oh to goodness. accomplish that would be far above a well, million dollars. So not only did they not get a winner after four years, which was the deadline, they extended the deadline and they still didn't get a winner. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we're talking 2012 or whatever, and still, like, you know, they didn't have it yet. So well, if it's anything, if Pete is anything, it's reasonable. 
So that was probably a reasonable deadline they set. Wow. So much sarcasm. Just so much. Just dripping. Um, but in 2013, live on a um, British TV show, there was a guy, a researcher, who um, had made the first cultured like hamburger, ground hamburger patty. Okay. Like, oh, it was a full patty. Yeah. And he okay. was like, we're going we're gonna to cook this thing live on air. Take a guess how much it cost him to make that one burger patty. Three million. Okay, that's too high. Oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> I should never have asked. It cost him $300,000. Holy moly. Wow. So he brought this $300,000 cultured meat burger patty on. That is an expensive burger. And that's a risk, actually, because what if it didn't work? That's a, it means live on TV. He cooks it, and they tasted it, and they, th- they thought it was pretty good. All right. They were, like, they were like, it's not quite as juicy, maybe, but it tastes like meat. They were all pretty convinced. Here's yeah. the other question I have. Like, what will this meat be called? Would it ju- will it just be like a meat burger? Because you're not gonna. Can you go and get like cultured chicken meat and or cultured veal or cultured yeah, venison that or would is be it the just idea, like yeah. meat meat? I'm just gonna have the meat that tastes like beef. I think the dream down the line is to have the same options that we have now with the same flavors and tastes and everything. But it's just. But if it comes from a frog, right, right. But they're they're putting it on the menu like a steak, which is usually associated with a cow. True. At some like, do you associate the name with what it has tasted like, or with the animal it actually came from? Mm. This is like a matrix. There's, I mean, there's more it steaks is. than just cow, pork steaks. Yeah, I know. But on a menu, if you yeah, if you get a you steak, saw steak, it's, it's a cow. It's yeah, the thing I had seen, I think it ended up being like a chorizo kind of thing. They made it into some kind of Mexican dish. So there are now thirty companies, thirty plus like small startups around the world that are competing to be the next like impossible burger for for clean meat and that's big money because if you think about it yeah that's that's endless growth and it could completely wipe out the agriculture industry as we know it and be replaced by just lab-grown meat and the thing is that even though people are gonna like be all scared of it because it was grown in a laboratory most of like the well all of the medicine that we take and a lot of the clothes we wear all started in environments where it was like people experimenting with different things mm-hmm. so we can chill out about that we put a lot of things yeah. in and on our body that come out of laboratories the other thing too is the fact that it's cultured like again it sounds like petri dish that's gross right. you know what cheese is mm-hmm. you know what mushrooms are Just- Fungus. These, these are things that have grown and bacteria or fungus have gotten a hold of that we love to eat. So yeah, we can make this work. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why everyone's so afraid of labs anyway. It's like the cleanest area ever. Have you seen what these like lab kitchens look like ever? They are a clean kitchen. The nicest looking kitchen you will ever see, but with like scientific gear around it too. The biggest problem right now is that it's um, it's really expensive. Yeah. Like, you know, per pound or whatever and so just like anything though like it's expensive when it starts and yep. when they're researching it and then the cost comes down there's competition in the market and eventually i i don't know i let's let's make predictions okay. when do we think that we will be eating our first lab-grown clean meat now when you say we do you mean specifically us or just people us us okay when was the three hundred thousand dollar thing 2013 okay so it was about eight years ago okay and that costs a lot of money then. Man, I would think it still might be a minute. I, I would I would give it a solid 20 years. 20 oh, years? I was yeah. going to say 2025 to 2030. So five to 10 years. Five to 10 years. I was going to go in that range too. I'm going to say, I think it's going to advance really quickly though. Thinking about how fast those plant-based foods came around, like mm-hmm. it was a matter of yeah. three years maybe by the time I heard about it to the time I ate. Yeah, them. but they were trying plant-based meats for 
decades. They finally just came up right. with it, right? I mean, right. they've been trying this since Winston Churchill. <laughs> That's true. He was the inventor. No, He was he, a visionary he was not, of yeah. cultured meat. I'm going to eat my first cultivated, cultured, clean piece of meat in 2027. Okay, so you're right there with me. I think so. Okay. I, yeah, maybe, I think maybe. given our career... It's a possibility we could we could get it earlier than that. We'll get a sponsorship. Else. We'll get we'll figure something. We'll make a video where we get to go to the lab, try it out before the FDA says it's cool. <laughs> that no, you're doing that. I'll do that. Yeah, you'll do that. It's not the meat that it's just the taste of it. So like I am all for figuring out a more environmentally conscious way for me to still get meat. Yeah. Science, science meat. I love science the cause. It just based on the recent price and how they're still perfecting it, I could still I could see it being a little longer than that, but yep. ho- hopefully it is sooner than fifteen or twenty years. Regardless, it's bad news for the impossible foods because once they can grow something that's probably more like real meat, and it'll be ground before it's like a steak. It'll, you'll just have like this lab-based or lab-grown ground meat. It kind of takes out the like if you're a vegan, it takes out a lot of the arguments against meat. Right. You're not killing an animal. You're not perpetuating you know this giant Man, agricultural yeah. complex. It's got to be better news, better worse news for. People that own a ton of cattle and livestock for this purpose. I mean, th- that's that's something that I could see holding this up. I mean, we talk about this type of stuff all the time. How how mm-hmm. much are advances in human accomplishment and making things better like this are held up by to Danny's whole thing that he gets on, like the lobbyists, you know, the people who are building. Yeah. I mean, we talk about that all the time with the energy, right? Like the oil industry has impeded our advancement in alternate sources of energy. I have to imagine based on how much... How many animals are used for our consumption that there would be a giant enough industry to push back and slow this down? Yeah, if you they look- were, but if they were smart, this is my whole thing with all that stuff. If those old industries were smart, they would be the ones investing and in starting companies that are trying to figure out how to do this. But I think they would come back and be like, why would I invest in something that's going to put me out of business? So that you can have a new business when your old business dies. You're going to be out of yeah. business regardless. I just don't know if people think that way. They, they should. May, maybe they should. There was somebody that was recently talking. I, I actually think Joe Biden got in trouble recently because... That's the true. pipeline, probably. Yes, okay. People that were working on the pipeline should simply start working in like the solar panel industry. Right. And I think that's easy on face value to say that, but some people that... Their livelihood is built on this career that they've invested in. Is it easy for everybody in that industry to make that pivot? Yeah. But I think I think the concern is like I think there is a a big thing, and you have to think about that to some extent. Like, okay, we cancel this pipeline. There's jobs, um, but it's like yes, but we're going to keep holding back advancement because we're afraid of an old industry that's dying. Yes, like why? Absolutely, because for a lot of people, it's however it's going to directly and immediately affect me is all they care about. It's not, we all care about that. Like we we make decisions based on our how things feel to us more than how it makes sense. Oh I mean, yeah, it's easy to think big picture for somebody else, but whenever it's impacting someone who's really making it, it's hard to make yeah. ends meet. Um, all the different farmers that have relationships with Tyson or with all these different meat companies that is also maybe tied to like a family generation after generation mm-hmm. of being farmers or you know cattle growers or whatever. I. I it makes sense on paper, but I could see that being an impedance to it becoming a widespread thing. Yeah, I always go back to like though when when cars were invented, they destroyed the horse and buggy industry, and there was tons of people who worked in uh, working with horses or worked with fixing all the buggies and carriages and all that stuff. So. Would we look back on that now and be like, oh, you're right. We should have held off on cars. I think the difference there is that there was such a noticeable immediate like 
benefit to right. anybody. Like if a guy has always had a horse and buggy and he sees someone fly by in a Model T, he's going to be like, I want one of those. I, I'll work for that. That You're not going to have that right. same exchange of value for somebody who's saying, I'm making a lot of money off of selling my cows to this meat company and I'm going to help them do cultured laboratory meat, which is like the opposite of a farm because it's like filth versus like, like it's yeah. a completely different world that they don't see an immediate benefit from. Yeah. I just think it's a bad idea to to delay helping yourself and future generations because we can't think past, well, what am I going to do? Because I, I work in this industry. Like, first of well, all- Well, maybe then you can help. How do I help? Stop eating meat. But doesn't that hurt the no, meat industry? No, it, br- it brings down the demand so that it's, it's oh, not- Oh, slowly bring down the yeah, demand for so meat so that it gradually gets better. Do your part and stop eating meat and, and Oof. help make it happen. Maybe. You can start by eating impossible meat. Oh, I, I would. I've been trying to figure out a good way to financially afford impossible meat more often, but it, it's actually hard to get around here. Like you I can't go even for the impossible it. meat whenever you can get it. Any, you do too. Yeah. Any if I'm at a place and they'll substitute impossible into their burger, I will without a doubt get it every time. Yeah. But you see what I'm saying? Like it's it's when you have to make a significant mm-hmm. life switch, it's it causes you to pause. Yeah. So. Yep. It's interesting. Don't hold up the past for the future. That's good. Timely. I love it. That's that's like our <laughs> inspiration. Don't, don't hold up the future for the past. There it is. That's 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 what it was. That's yeah. what it was. That's yeah, what yeah, I said. You just did it backwards there. No, I didn't. I knew we're, what we're, you gonna, meant. we're gonna edit it. We're gonna so edit that out. So I said it's no, perfect. no. I heard Jeff leave the thing in that I sounded silly last week, <laughs> uh, and this week John gets to seem silly. Don't did, hold up the future for the past. <laughs> oh, that's there good, John. Thanks. Yeah, that's the inspirational slogan for Timely Podcast. Yep. Yeah. By the way, you guys you are turning against me. Do you guys, do you guys notice how I never sound dumb on the podcast? Yeah, because <laughs> I edit out all my dumb things. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah, it's good for you. Mark. Yeah. Anyways, do you want me to edit the podcast this week? No, I'm good. I got it. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for hanging out with us, guys. Um, we'll see you next time on Timely with three more random fun topics. <laughs> thanks for being with us. Peace. See you.